Earth, a great place for life? Eh, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. The discovery of an Earth-sized, fully terrestrial exoplanet seems to be imminent. Our guest, Abel Mendez, has come up with a system for evaluating the habitability of planets, including our own. We'll ask him how we ended up with only an average grade. Emily Lakdawalla will use her Q&A segment to answer those who say the new definition of a planet is so narrow, maybe there aren't any. And Bruce Betts is just back from what might be called the Armageddon Conference. He'll tell us about it in today's What's Up segment, featuring yet another space trivia contest. I want you to know that next week we'll start the celebration of what would have been Carl Sagan's 75th birthday. Dr. Sagan's widow and longtime collaborator, Andrewian, will join us once again. In the meantime, the latest news from around our universe is always in Emily's blog at planetary.org. The next couple of minutes belong to Bill Nye. Bill has found a link between two stories you may have missed in last week's Space News, and that link is Elemental. I'll be right back with Abel Mendez. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy here, Vice President of the Planetary Society. And this week, let's talk about oxygen. In the ocean of Europa, Europa is one of the moons observed by Galileo originally. If you have a telescope, you can see Europa yourself. It moves every few hours. And there's evidence now that there's oxygen in what is probably an ocean on Europa. So maybe there would be living things there. Maybe we should send a space probe there and have a look around. We could maybe change the world by discovering the, the nature of life somewhere else. But oh no, in order to get there right now, at our current level of understanding, we need electricity on a spacecraft. And the only way we know to get a lot of electricity onto a spacecraft right now, that's a real long way from the sun, is with plutonium. That's right, plutonium, which is an element that does not occur in nature since we uh, haven't lived long enough ago. Instead, we have to make it. This is where you take uranium, which has 92 protons, and transmute it into plutonium, which has 94 protons, generally the same atomic mass, 238. And you do this in a reactor, a tricky business. It was figured out back during World War II. So that funding's cut. The U.S. Congress decided not to fund the production of plutonium. And you could say, well, that's a good thing because plutonium is so toxic. You know, I had lunch with Glenn Seaborg, and he insisted that plutonium have the atomic symbol PU because it stinks and is deadly and poisonous and dangerous. By the way, Glenn Seaborg invented or made or created the first plutonium. But even with that, even as dangerous as it is, it's cool to have a little bit of it around for spacecraft. Now, maybe if there's no plutonium, engineers will come up with some new way to drag a coil through the Jupiterian magnetosphere, the magnetic field of Jupiter, and maybe generate electricity. But that's decades away. No one's ever done that. Plutonium, we know how to do now, and we know how to do it safely as long as we don't do too much of it. So, my friends, if you wanted to go to Europa and sniff around for life, it's going to be that much harder. These are the trade-offs. These are the difficult decisions you have to make as a society if you want to explore space. Think it over, my fellow taxpayers and voters. I got to fly. Bill Nye, the planetary guy. 
almost 400 exoplanets now and still counting. Counting fast, the discovery of 32 more worlds was announced by European scientists just last week. Our tools still aren't quite sensitive enough to detect a planet that's the size of our own orbiting in that Goldilocks region called the habitable zone. Does anyone doubt that they're out there waiting for us? And when we find them, how will we use the data to determine whether they can support life? What we need is a quantitative system for evaluating planetary habitability, and wouldn't you know, someone has come up with one. Abel Mendez is a professor of physics and astrobiology at the University of Puerto Rico's Arecibo campus. Yes, that Arecibo, the one with the world's largest radio telescope. Professor Mendez presented his study at the 41st meeting of the American Astronomical Society's Division for Planetary Sciences, held during the first week of October in Puerto Rico. I was intrigued by the press release I read, so I invited him to join us on the show. Abel, thanks very much for joining us on Planetary Radio. Hi, I thank you for having me. We are especially appreciative because, of course, doing this in English would probably not be your first choice. In fact, you just said that you just moments ago finished uh, an interview in Spanish. I've told the audience a little bit about uh, what uh, you presented at uh, DPS right there in Puerto Rico last uh, a couple of weeks ago now. Why did you begin this effort, which uh, seems to me to be perfectly timed as as the discovery of uh, terrestrial exoplanets seems to be around the corner. Well, I wanted to precisely evaluate the potential of life of a planetary body. So about five years ago, I started studying how the environment affects microbial life and plants. So these are primary producers for food of more complex life, like animals, including humans. So it makes sense to me at the start that studying the habitability of simple life forms as they are needed for the rest of life. So after this study matured, it was easier, an easier step for me to extrapolate that to other planetary bodies, including extrasolar planets. It was mostly based on, on strong biology. I needed to do a, a lot of strong biology to include it in the models so I can, you know, dare just to move that to other planetary bodies. I saw in your bio that it, it looks like you've been doing uh, this kind of uh, modeling for many years. Yes, yes. I, I started actually doing a small experiments just to measure how different microbial life get uh, uh, affected by changes on the environment, especially extreme uh, temperatures and pressure environment. So I got that data, and from that data, I just moved to just completely doing modeling. So that's one thing right now. Just a few uh, different experiments just to test the models, but mostly mo modeling. How actually does this evaluation work? And uh, this is, I don't think there's any way for this not to be slightly technical, so we'll ask the audience to bear with us. But can you, can you take us through uh, how, uh, for one thing, how you classify planetary habitability? There's many ways to do it, depending on how much detail you have on the environment. The more detail you have on the environment, the better would be your estimate. So, so far, I include temperature, uh, pressure, humidity, relative humidity, pH. So, uh, the, the model can be very complex. But uh, for evaluating for, for planetary bodies, we have a very limited information. So, they are estimated on the information we have on the planet. So, in a, for the extrasolar planet case, 
the estimate works by the by the mean surface temperature and water vapor of the or ocean coverage. So if we got that basic information, that might be the only information that we will get of those planets. Then I can cal calculate an habitability. So I created an habitability, a planetary habitability classification uh, as a letter from A to F just to compare the potential for life of planets. A means a better planet for life. F means not good for life. So Earth today, in this classification, is a classic planet. I think it had two big periods in the past where it was a class B. And this surprised me that uh, that our, our Earth, teeming with life, only gets a C in your system. <laughs> yes, yes, that's surprising. And I usually start a conference about this, asking the audience, is this planet is good for life? So everybody say yes, of course, this, this, this is a good planet for life. But uh, well, then I show a map of the planet with the coverage of vegetation. And I ask again, and I say, well, it's not so good for life. And you know this. Look at this map, and you see, you see a lot of deserts. You see a lot of, of uh, polar deserts also. Imagine a planet where it was all the land coverage with vegetation, like a tropical forest all around. That will be a better planet for life. So you know this is not that good planet for life. It could get better. So I think it was like that, much better for life in the past. And I mean better for microbial life and plants. So in this classification, it takes all these details in account. So for that's why it's a, it's a classic planet. So class B or class A planet will be a much better planet for life coverage with vegetation, the oceans will also be uh, more coverage with uh, phytoplankton, and productivity will be higher in those conditions. What would an A, a planet in classification A, uh, look like if we were to be able to uh, image that planet and actually see its continents and, and oceans? Yeah, you will see a strong signal from vegetation. One of the things that you will also get from those measurements at the planet will be from the atmosphere, you can get also a general idea of a, of a vegetation index. For a planet class A, it will be very dramatic, more than, than, than Earth. You will see a signal that there is a vegetation there. So that will be something very different from here. It would be a very good uh, planet covered with vegetation, maybe more continent, may, maybe a well-balanced, a 50-50 percent of, of continents and, and oceans, not like today here, it's 71 percent coverage of ocean, it's less land. And even though we have that land, it's not even completed uh, coverage with mm. vegetation. Now, as you've said, our data that we have so far from exoplanets, even though hundreds have already been discovered, is pretty limited. Has, has there even been enough data about any single exoplanet for you to be able to uh, apply the model and, and begin to refine it? Now, unfortunately, we haven't discovered terrestrial size planet yet. All the detected planets so far are too big, like the gaseous Jupiter, or too close to the star, so they are very hot. That means that they are F in my scale. But with the planned missions in the future, in the next two decades, we will be able to detect terrestrial-sized planets in the what is called the habitable zone, so and therefore classify them in my scale. So that will be a, uh, by that time, that would be a good thing to do 
just to just to classify them and see if they are about the class F planet. And that will be very surprising. That's Professor Abel Mendez. He'll be back in a minute with more about his system for evaluating a planet's ability to support life. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the science guy here. I hope you're enjoying Planetary Radio. We put a lot of work into this show and all our other great Planetary Society projects. I've been a member since the disco era. Now I'm the Society's Vice President. And you may well ask, why do we go to all this trouble? Simple. We believe in the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be listening. Of course, you can do more than just listen. You can become part of the action, helping us fly solar sails, discover new planets, and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life elsewhere in the universe. Here's how to find out more. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Abel Mendez is a physicist and astrobiologist at the University of Puerto Rico. He recently presented his proposal for the quantitative evaluation of a planet's habitability, its ability to support life. The system looks at many factors to award a planet a rating of A through F, with our own homeworld getting just a grade of C. The model seems to be, by necessity, geocentric, or, or terra-centric, if I can use that phrase. Does it in any way consider life that is potentially different from life as we know it? I don't even know how you would approach that. Well, my models are totally focused on life on Earth. So they are very based on the biology of Earth, so terrestrial life. The laws of biology may be universal. Life has some plasticity to adapt to extreme environments, but it has its limits. So by bo- my bonding in this limit, it helps me constrain and quantify the potential environment that can sustain life in other uh, planetary bodies. It also helps me identify potential habitats for extraterrestrial life, but also to address those environments that can be contaminated by terrestrial life. So I don't think that this uh, modeling effort can be just used to detect a life that uh, identify potential habitats, but also how will this habitat react if we contaminate them by terrestrial life. In the end, by creating models fine-tuned for terrestrial life, it also helps to identify any detected life as biological related to life on Earth or not. So the problem is that even if we detect some life by some signal, we will, we will get confused if that's something related to life on Earth or not. This model, by making them Earth-centric, will discern very much easier this is something related for, for life on Earth or this is not, but it's still life. Hmm. And I suppose that as that data continues to come in, and it's only in a matter of time before we find a truly Earth-like planet, uh, you're going to stick with this, and you will be refining the model? Oh, yes, yes. For refining the model, it's just based on, on terrestrial data. That data uh, will refine a lot the, the model, so I expect to do a, a lot of work on that and then apply also just to, to the past environments and uh, and. What, how will our planet will react to, to global warming? So different uh, scenarios, terrestrial life. So, but I, it has to have a, a, a lot of component from terrestrial life. 
just to make sure that I have some sensible models that I can extrapolate to other environments and know that uh, how it wakes related to Earth. And I think it's a very important point that this model may help us to uh, continue to evaluate the evolving habitability of our own planet. Oh, yes, yes. And I, I want to do a lot of work on that. But the thing is, it's, it's so complex just to evaluate right now so much data. Because I, as I mentioned before, I did some experiments in microbial life, but most of my data for, for other like plants comes from, uh, from the scientific literature. So I compile a lot of database and try to use that data from many years' experiments just to model that and convert those to, to habitability functions that I can use to predict habitability. So there's a lot of things to do now from that just to be able to make good predictions for the future. Mm. Uh, on a personal level, it must have been uh, very exciting to have DPS, uh, the Division for Planetary Sciences annual conference, uh, come to Puerto Rico this year. How was your uh, presentation received? I think it was well received, especially after the comments I received during the week. Some were more intrigued about how to calculate habitability not only for extrasolar planets, but also for terrestrial or solar system applications, especially Mars. This was the first DPS conference in Puerto Rico, first time for me also, because I usually go to the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference or the NASA Astrobiology Science Conference. But I did notice that there's less astrobiology in the DPS as compared to other planetary science conferences. Mm -hmm. There was not a section for astrobiology, so I was put in the on the extrasolar planet uh, <laughs> conference. Well, at least there's some uh, relation there. Just one other question before we let you go. I find it fascinating that your uh, campus of the University of Puerto Rico is uh, is in Arecibo, uh, right there where the Great Radio Telescope is. Is there is there a relationship there? Yeah, the University of Puerto Rico, Arecibo, is a campus in the same town, the Arecibo Telescope. Telescope. Everybody knows the observatory by its location name, Arecibo, but its actual name is the National Astronomy and Ionosphere Center, or NICE. Our university has an agreement of cooperation with some research and education experience with the observatory. And I also share my office with an uh, astrophysicist that is using the observatory. So we are at the university. He's the astrophysicist. I am the astrobiologist. Excellent. And I hope you get along very well. I'm not so, but I'm not just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are out of time. I want to thank you for joining us on uh, the program today. And uh, the best of luck, as uh, you must be looking forward to uh, data coming in from, uh, from a terrestrial planet someplace yes. outside of our own solar system. Yes, I expect in that, and I, uh, it will come so slow, so many years, <laughs> but uh, that will be a lot of fun. Abel, thanks again for joining us on Planetary Radio. Thank you for having me. Our guest, Abel Mendez, is a professor at the University of Puerto Rico at Arecibo. He has over 20 years' experience in computer modeling of uh, physical and now biophysical phenomena, and uh, did a lot of that work before he moved on to the bio side at Fermilab. And in 2007, he was funded by the NASA Astrobiology Institute to uh, construct a device to measure microbial growth in extreme environments. And he worked on that with uh, Chris McKay, a scientist who regular listeners to this program are certainly very familiar with. We'll be right back with uh, this week's edition of What's Up after we hear from Emily.
Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Part of the new definition of a planet is that it has to have cleared its neighborhood. But what about the rings and moons? Does that mean that the planets haven't really cleared their neighborhoods, so they're not really planets either? The criterion of clearing its neighborhood is the most confusing part of the new definition of a planet to most people. And it's true that if the requirement really were that the neighborhood be empty, nothing in our solar system would be a planet. What the International Astronomical Union meant is that the body has to gravitationally dominate the area around its orbit. There are lots of particles, boulders, and moons orbiting the giant planets, but all are under the thrall of the planet's gravity. Earth's orbit is crossed by thousands of near-Earth objects which may pose a future hazard to life on Earth, but which are so relatively tiny compared to Earth that they have negligible effect on Earth's orbital motion. So Earth is a planet. Most of the planets also have co-orbital satellites that sit at two gravitationally stable points 60 degrees away from the planet. These so-called Trojan asteroids share the same exact orbit as the planet, but they're still under the power of the planet's gravity. Pluto is one of a great many outer solar system bodies that are under the gravitational control of Neptune, orbiting the Sun exactly three times for every two times Neptune goes around. Fully a quarter of known Kuiper Belt objects share this property. Neptune's gravity dominates this behavior, so Neptune is considered a planet, while Pluto is not. The International Astronomical Union considers Pluto, as well as fellow Kuiper Belt objects Eris, Haumea, and Makemake, to be dwarf planets. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is on the Skype connection, and that means it's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Welcome. Where have you been lately? I feel like I've been all sorts of places. It's been a busy week, but amongst the week, I spent uh, I spent part of three days in Chantilly, Virginia. Chantilly Lace. <laughs> and a pretty face and a ponytail, but anyway, don't get me started. Yeah, about at a workshop talking about nuclear and uh, kinetic impact options for asteroid deflection. It was uh, it was quite fascinating. Cool. That's uh, Armageddon time. <laughs> so, what? Which did you decide to go with? The nukes or knock them? <laughs> there was this was far from a decision meeting. <laughs> this was just a, a, looking at that and also getting different communities from NASA to DOD together. And we actually have looked at and are looking at lots of other options. This just happened to be the workshop I was going to. Well, that does sound like fun, though. So tell us about the night sky. What's up there other than uh, electromagnetic pulse? <laughs> which is not what we'd use, but okay. Uh, what's up there is Jupiter dominating the evening, brightest star-like object in the evening, high in the south after sunset, and uh, then moving over towards the west by later in the evening, uh, early the week, right after this uh, this show airs. You can uh, check it out uh, next to the moon if you happen to catch this on the 27th or 28th. We've also got in the pre-dawn, Venus still visible, but getting lower and lower. Extremely bright object over in the east before dawn, and getting farther away from it, higher above and about 100 times dimmer, is Saturn, but still looking like a bright star. And high overhead in, in the pre-dawn is Mars looking reddish, 
Uh, it's kind of in the general neck of the woods of the Gemini twin stars. So check those things out. And uh, in the meantime, we will go on to this week in space history. It was this week in 1971 when the UK became the sixth spacefaring nation with a launch of their own satellite. Jolly good. Righto. And uh, we move on to Random Space Fact. That was lovely. Thank you. Oh, you have a fact, too. I do. <laughs> hey, I picked up tons of facts, some of which I'll be sharing over coming weeks at this uh, at this workshop. Uh, this one, uh, courtesy of, of Don Yeomans from JPL. Uh, he talked about the fragility of comets, and uh, in particular, Comet Shoemaker Levy 9, of course, impacted Jupiter. And you may recall it got ripped by Jupiter's gravity into lots and lots of pieces, over 20 different pieces before the impact. Well, for Jupiter's gravity to do that, it turns out that it, it would have to be about a, fragile enough that you could have gone in there with your hands and, and pulled apart pieces. <laughs> it's just a big snow cone, really, a dirty snow cone. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we move on to the trivia contest, and uh, following the, the L-Cross impact, we were inspired to ask you about previous lunar impacts. What was the first spacecraft to impact the moon, and what was the last spacecraft before L-Cross? How'd we do, Matt? Uh, this was really fun because yeah, it's a double one, and people did a terrific job getting us answers. I think only one person was off, and that was only half off. Our winner, I will simply tell you, and I believe he's a first-time winner, although been entering for a long, long time, Ted Judah out of Petaluma, California, up, uh, near where one of my brothers, uh, Brother Stephen, lives. And uh, Ted said it was, the first one, was Luna 2. Almost exactly 50 years before Elcross, September 13, 1959. And then immediately before Elcross, it was Japan's Kaguya, also uh, crashed intentionally into the moon. And in fact, we got some uh, animation of that taking place uh, from uh, our friend uh, Lindsay, a uh, regular listener down there in Australia. We did have another uh, nomination, by the way. I should bring this up very quickly. And uh, that was Wan Hu. In the 16th century, Ed Lupin said that supposedly he uh, launched himself up to the moon in a rocket chair of his own design and <laughs> formed a crater called Wan Hu. <laughs> well, I, I guess that that would have been the first impact if that had happened. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, we are going to send a planetary radio T-shirt to Ted Judah. And maybe an Oceanside Photo and Telescope Rewards card, too. And let's move on right after I tell people that for the moment, we only have large T-shirts. So find a large friend, everybody, and listen to this new question from Bruce Batts. Deep Impact Spacecraft impacted Comet Temple 1. What density, average bulk density, did Deep Impact find out that uh, Temple 1 had? Yeah, Temple One Density, that's what we're looking for. Go to planetary.org slash radio, find out how to enter. You've got until Monday, November 2nd at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time, to get us that answer. Drop us a line. We hope you'll enter. And one, I guess I guess that's it. One quick Halloween question. I hear you've been reading scary stories to children. I have indeed. I was at our local aquarium, the Aquarium of the Pacific, right here in my hometown, Long Beach, California, which uh, turns into the Scarium of the Pacific. And I had a great time reading uh, scary stories to kids uh, today, as a matter of fact. 
Oh, I'm so glad it was actually scheduled at a real place. <laughs> yeah, it really was. <laughs> All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about Matt reading scary stories to you while you do. Thank you, and good night. Scary kitties. <laughs> I should have known that was coming. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. There's no telling what he'll turn into on uh, Halloween as we approach that All Hallows evening uh, just a few days away as we record this for What's Up. Another reminder that my guest next week will be Andrew Ian, the distinguished writer and producer who is the wife and longtime collaborator of Carl Sagan. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Keep looking up. <laughs>